All right, Kindred Church, what's up? I'm so glad to see you guys. It's been a few minutes for me since I've seen you guys up here. Uh, scheduling was weird, but I'm thrilled that you're in this room with us tonight, and I'm thrilled about these, uh, these words from Acts that we get to look at. But before I jump into what we're doing tonight, I want to real quick look back at last week. If you guys missed last week, uh, it was an incredible night. Lara Vivi, who was at five o'clock, and I got to embarrass her, um, she taught just an incredible message about women their role in the biblical narrative, uh, their role in, in life in general. And then she challenged every single one of us, male and female, uh, at any place I feel like we are in life with what was to me a very timely message about things that God wants to do both big and small in us and through us. And so if you missed that, check out YouTube, uh, check out our, our podcast on, on whatever format you use for that because it was that good. Uh, leading up to that, we've been in the book of Acts now for about a month, and Lindsay has set us up really, really well on this journey through the early church, uh, these early chapters of Acts where we see a church developing out of a movement, so the, some organization around that movement. We see leaders rising to the occasion, and then we see persecution that's really hard, honestly, for us to relate to in 2021 America, but that Acts uh, paints a really vivid picture of uh, for us to, to, to get, be able to understand and to, to get so tonight, I'm picking up right where Lindsay left off. She talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the first martyr of the Jesus movement, the first person to die for his faith, a disciple named Stephen, who was murdered after he gave this really impassioned defense of his faith in Jesus in a courtroom. And the court system couldn't deliver a guilty verdict. So what we see in there is that we see this mob take it upon themselves to, to deliver what they felt was justice, right, in quotes. Uh, they, they, they wanted to get the verdict they wanted and they were going to do anything they could to make it happen. So that's where the last line uh, of Lindsay's talk that week uh, the, in scripture that she used lands us right where we start tonight. And it's from Acts 7. It says this, Meanwhile, the, the mob, the witnesses, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, which is a weird thing, so I'm going to get back to that. And then a few lines later, And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church, against the Jesus movement in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So that's where we land in Acts 8. We meet this man, Saul. Saul, who's about to become the main character uh, of the rest of this book of Acts, seems to be in charge of this group of what we call zealots. So when I talk about zealots tonight, I want to get a definition for us. I mean this. I mean a person who's fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religious political, or other ideals. So in this case, we find Saul, who's a Pharisee. He's part of this group. Uh, it's a Jewish sect called uh, the Pharisees. He was born and raised in this group. And their pursuit of both their religious and their political ideals kind of blended. And as we might understand them in our, in our 21st century lens, they were kind of one and the same. But it led them to acts of violence and destruction and even murder in pursuit of protecting their very way of life and any threat that they saw to it. I think it's really important as we study uh, Pharisees and talk about them tonight and we study Saul and who he is, that we really set this table well. So in most cases in the Gospels of Jesus in the Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in this book called Acts that we're studying right now, we keep seeing Jesus and then the church uh, clash with this group called the Pharisees, right? They're in direct opposition to Jesus. They argue with him. They pick apart the things that he says. They, they play a part in killing Jesus, and we see that over and over again because this was a battle that was fought over and over again. But I was reading these last couple of weeks preparing for this and I started kind of thinking about it and I go, I've never really wondered what exactly was this division about? See, the Pharisees, uh, as zealots, 
were dead set on being protectors of the Judaism that they were raised in and that they, they lived and breathed. And I'm going to talk about this a lot tonight, but it wasn't so much a religion to them as we may understand it or see it. It was just their way of life. This group of people that emerges claiming that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah that the entire world has been waiting for threatens the Pharisees. For generations, they've waited for that Messiah. And for them to say Jesus is that person is just about as offensive of a thing that you can say to a Pharisee. So Saul and his people believed in the same kind of base Judaism. They believed that a time was coming where the real Messiah would show up, that he'd be revealed. But they, as evidenced by their arguments with Jesus all throughout Scripture and their interaction with the church, their murder of some of the apostles, they weren't convinced that this Jesus, right, this Prince of Peace, this gentle and humble Savior could possibly be the thing that they were waiting for. And it infuriated them to hear otherwise. The Pharisees were persecuting this Jesus movement for the exact reasons that anybody goes after any group, whether, whether it's modern or as ancient as anything. It's because they're threatened. So whether that's through violence or just leaving a really negative Yelp review, right? Because you're going to show that bakery who's boss, right? Or carefully crafted analogies or whatever it might be that somebody uses to discredit somebody else, it's because they're threatened by it. And Saul later on would write these letters in the New Testament that we call things like Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians. And he was, he was at this time, he's, he's called the Apostle Paul. So if I accidentally call him Paul a bunch of times tonight, same guy. But, this, but Paul, when he wrote these letters later, there is this nagging sense that you can read in some of his words. And he calls it a goading or a pushing against him that maybe Jesus was actually who he said he was all along. And if Paul, Saul, doesn't double down on it, that he's, then he's gonna, it's going to make, make him have to make a decision. So in the meantime, the Pharisees, and Saul especially, believed that it was their duty to protect their way of life by any means necessary so they won't ruin the chance that this real Messiah will show up. This theologian N.T. Wright puts it this way. It just kind of summarizes it better than I can. It says, Saul was brought up to believe that the appearance of the Messiah would happen, and perhaps very soon. Israel's God would indeed return in glory to establish his kingdom and visible global power. Now, if you remember Christmas or Easter and you joined us for those messages, we talked a lot about how they were waiting for a military leader. Saul's people believed they were getting a strong man Messiah. And in the meantime, there were things Jews could be doing to keep this promise and hope on track. It was vital for Jews to keep the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, with rigorous attention to detail and to defend those books and the temple itself against possible attacks and threats. Failure on these points would hold back the promise and would get in the way of the fulfillment of the great story that God has, has moved through the Jewish people for all time in. So this is what it's saying. Saul and his entire crew take up what can only be called terrorist attacks against all other groups of Jews, including the Jesus followers, because they're threatened that their way of life could go away. It's important for us to know this too. The Jesus followers, they call themselves the way, they didn't consider themselves to have started a new religion. They didn't think that they had converted to anything. They understood that they were following after the true Messiah in Jesus that was a continuation of their faith. So the killing of Stephen here in Acts is representative of the violence and the murder and the havoc that's going on all around the region as the Pharisees and other groups attempt to stop this Jesus movement before it gets more momentum. So, after this brief introduction that we get to Saul here in Acts, we're left to know a few things about him. We know that his zeal has made him a leader in this movement of Pharisees, this movement to stamp out the church of Jesus Christ. 
He makes him an important player in the persecution that some scholars believe was his only mission and goal in life at this time. We see him having the cloaks or clothes in the translation we use tonight hand, uh, laid at his feet as these guys beat Stephen to death with rocks. And the reason for that is because they literally didn't want to get blood on their good clothes. And so they, in their uh, like, kind of undergarments, beat this man to death. Saul oversaw it. He, he overwatched it. He was part of it. But when we next encounter him in Acts a few chapters later, everything's about to change in one of the most fantastic stories that we have. So let's start that. Acts 9 says this, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I read one commentator that said that breathing out, he's trying to say that Saul couldn't even put words to how angry he was. So he's just breathing out murderous threats. He went to the high priest. So he goes to the religious establishment and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the Jesus movement, whether women or men, he might take them as prisoners. So, Saul's goal of eradicating the Jesus movement is complicated by the fact that some of the people that that are part of the way, the Jesus movement, have left in Acts 8. As the persecution kicked off, they they fled the city. They got out of there. So he has to now figure out, how do I find the people that are impeding my movement, threatening my way of life, and get rid of them? So Saul finds out through word of mouth or something that a bunch of them are in Damascus, and he decides that he's going to go find them seeks the approval of the high priest. They have a partnership because two common enemies makes great friends, right? And so either way, he has firepower behind him as he heads out for this trip. It takes about a week to get to Damascus from where he was. It's a desert, uh, kind of an oasis city in the middle of a desert. And there's a whole cottage industry built around it. And as he's on his way to that place, somewhere in that week-long journey, one of the most amazing things that we can read in the Bible happens in chapter 9, verse 3. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So Saul and this traveling party on this road, he, he's, he's with a bunch of other people who hear the sounds but they don't see Jesus themselves. So Saul is literally blinded by a, a heavenly light and he has to be led into town to figure out what's next. I want to take a really quick break here because really it's difficult for me to capture how incredible what we just read is without seeing it, right? And, and I mean, like the bright lights and deafening voice, they're, they're crazy and it's one thing, but I, I think to, to actually see it and to experience it would be a whole nother thing, to grasp what it might've looked like or been like. Uh, the best thing that I could come up with is uh, I really like art. And I thought, what if I just you know, searched some images, from some painters from the Renaissance or whatever that maybe painted this scene. There's a bunch of weird ones. And I picked out some ones that were less weird to kind of get a feel for what it might have looked like on that road that day. The confusion, uh, the, 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 honestly, the, the violence of it. Uh, Charlie Blackman missing a fly ball. Like whatever that might look like. <laughs> that day, whether we have a visual for it or not, what we see is that something absolutely, like nothing has ever happened before like this. Something absolutely incredible happens to Saul, right? Jesus has gone to a length that we can't even believe, that we can't even fathom in our, in our own mind to reach this man who has called him his enemy. And it works, right? Saul lays blind. He's refusing food. And 
Eventually, Jesus tells a man named Ananias, he says, I need you to go find this man, Saul. And this is the line, he says, and tell him how much he must suffer for me. I'm gonna get back to that. And this is what happens next. Ananias shows up and finds Saul and says, placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized. So now, a few things. It's really important for us in the same way that the Jesus movement didn't consider themselves to have started a new religion or to convert it to something, for us to also understand Paul doesn't consider his moment on the road to Damascus as a conversion. I've heard it that way. The the word gets translated that way. It's a conversion of sorts, but he sees it differently. He spends the bulk of these letters in the New Testament helping us understand that his acceptance of who Jesus was as the Messiah was basically him just living into the truth that God's work through Jesus was actually what Jesus said it was. See, Saul would have understood this as a continuation of the thing that he lived out day in and day out. He had just been wrong. It's not a brand new religion. It's the same faith and the same system that those two things together that he's lived out every single day in Judaism. The word, the word is this. It's, it's, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time saying this one. It's iodeismus, which I almost got right. And it's really just the way the Hebrew understanding of their own faith, their own way of life. It refers to activity of faith and not religion. So that is to say this. That when Paul talks about his Judaism, because he continues to do that all throughout these letters he writes when he's Paul, when he talks about his, his Judaism, he's talking about who he is. He's talking about his ancestry, his way of life, where God is intertwined into every detail of everything that they do, where, where every part of their lives have God in them, they're zealous, they're passionate, and they're loyal to it. They would do anything for it. It's connected to that same zeal that caused him to seek this purification of people talking about their faith and people claiming Jesus to be a Messiah. And as we learn, he takes that same zeal and he turns from leading mobs and violent acts to using reason and faith and both spoken and written words and an eloquent presentation of who Jesus is to basically the entire known world. So this term, we hear this term, road to Damascus or a road to Damascus moment in our culture sometimes. I don't know if you have, I I hear it from time to time, where somebody has a sudden realization or a sudden change. And I think what we see in this passage is we do see a sudden realization, but the change in Paul doesn't take place instantly. It doesn't. See, we find out uh, through, through study that Paul, after this moment on the road to Damascus, spends about a decade away from everybody, he goes and he meets, the, he meets the church. They're scared of him, which we'll get to in a second. And then he disappears for a long time. And not a lot is known about what Paul did during this decade plus that he disappeared. It's kind of obvious that he studied who Jesus was, how Jesus was the continuation of this, this way of life, this Judaism, this, this Iodeismus. Scholars speculate that Paul must have had a mentor or maybe mentors that he was working on understanding how to turn all of that zeal and passion into a positive force to do the thing that he had to do. So I believe this, though. We can connect some of these dots ourselves, and so I did that. I want to talk about that for the rest of our time together. Here's what I believe. For every single one of us, from Saul all the way to us sitting in this room tonight, fundamentally, after we experience something, a moment or a season or or anything that leaves us changed, leaves us feeling like everything's going to be different from this point forward, 
I think we all struggle with some of the same questions and the same things. And they're really questions that are centered on the kind of things like, what now? Or what did that mean? Or what did I truly experience? Or what do I do from here? And they're questions of identity. They're questions where we say, who am I? Who am I becoming? And they don't just happen with flashing lights and booming voices, although they certainly can. They happen, honestly, through the process of every single one of our everyday lives. There's watershed moments, there's big life events, but most of it's done step by step, day after day, little piece by little piece. Because they're questions of purpose. And I've, I've moved through this moment, what's next? What am I supposed to do with the person that I feel like I'm becoming? How can I contribute to things that really matter to me? What does life look like from this point forward? And it's tied to concepts like calling and uniqueness and influence. Lara used one of my favorite ways to say this last week because she said, you were created on purpose for a purpose. And these kind of questions help us determine what that might be. See, Saul faced multiple obstacles in his answers to these questions. At first, he was leaving a group of people that shared that violent zeal that he'd lived in. He was leaving that group of people who had beaten a man to death for saying that Jesus was Messiah just a few chapters before They were bound by ideals that distinguished them from others. And we have to understand that it was a really dangerous thing for him to do. And we all know personally, either secondhand or in a a story of our own life, how hard it is to lead a group that is tight bound when you know that you need to. See, Paul could never be welcomed back into the, the home he was raised in, the community that he was raised in. He was a traitor or worse. We see multiple times in Acts and in his letters that his life was literally in danger. And it makes sense that it would be. And again, about a month ago, I shared a quote that I love from a Chinese pastor that said this. He said, in China, Christians are persecuted with beatings and imprisonment. And in the West, Christians are persecuted by the words of other Christians, which I think is the most, like, honestly, like probably the most convicting thing I've ever read. But if I take the liberty to apply it to the Acts church, I I think I might say it this way. In the early church, Christians were persecuted with beatings and imprisonment. And in 2021, Christians are persecuted with the words of other Christians. So on the other side of this, what we have with Paul is this. He's aligned himself with the way, with the Jesus movement that they're all trying to stamp out. And it wasn't a huge group of people. It was really well known in the region. And he, of course, as the leader of this mob that killed Stephen and and who knows how many others in their pursuit of cleansing their life from these pests would be on the run. Here's what Paul writes later on. He says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And in Acts, Luke tells us this way. He says, when he, Saul Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really who he said he was. So Saul, in this moment, needs a breakthrough. He needs something to push him past the place that he is, something to give him the, 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 the guts honestly, to pursue the call that he has. And I think his breakthrough was twofold and really has implications for us that I want to look at tonight. The first one was this. Paul, just like Ananias had come and joined him and talked to him, is visited by another man named Barnabas. And Barnabas comes to him in this moment where the disciples don't believe that Paul could possibly be telling the truth. He shows up and he puts a lot on the line in order to vouch for Paul. He tells them, I not only, he tells them the story about Damascus Road and he says, and then I saw him speak to people about Jesus in a way that only a Jesus follower would. I saw his life threatened. 
I saw the moment that as we continued on our journey together, this continuation of our faith, that, that Paul, that Saul is who he says he is. But the second thing is this, Saul had to follow through on all of these convictions that he held, all these new things that he believed and allow himself to be judged and talked about and threatened and persecuted. And ultimately to bravely step into the things that he knew he was supposed to through his time in the desert that shaped him. I think it's really tempting sometimes for me to think it's just a story that must have been easy. He moved through it. But the truth is it was not easy at all. It was really, really hard. And when Ananias is told to tell him he must suffer for me, we're going to look at that in depth next week. But we get the idea that what Paul is facing is something that few have. See, putting action into resolve is the most important thing that we can do as followers of Jesus. So for Paul to really just believe that Jesus was who he said he was is one thing. For him to actually go after it changes everything. I believe that our mind and our heart have to align to the strength that we need to make big changes. That's why this word called repentance in the Bible, whether it's in a big way or a small way, is about a few things. It's about the way that we think. It's about a mindset. But it isn't complete until it's accompanied by doing something about it. And we can't think our way out of things. We have to act on them. Saul had the Holy Spirit take over, and it changed, in my opinion, the course of Western history, which is crazy. So when we respond to our own version of flashing lights and the call of Jesus, when we allow the Holy Spirit to take over for us because of whatever it is and however he called us, we can change our own history, even if it doesn't change the world. So to close up tonight, I want to suggest a few things that I think Saul did uh, that we can apply to when we have one of these Damascus Road or desert moments where something happens, big or small, and we know that the day after that and from then on, nothing's ever the same. So based on how Paul, how Saul acted, here's what we do. First, we decide what the change is. And this is our questions of identity. When this thing happened or this moment happened or this period of time happened where all of a sudden we wake up one day and have a realization that something is different, what's led you to this moment that you're in? What, do you, what were you pursuing because you wished was different? And what is in your power with the Holy Spirit to actually change? And second, the next thing that Saul did, we find a mentor to help us through it. And Saul, he had Ananias show him a better pathway, the right way to go. And this can be a counselor, this can be a friend, this can be a book that you read. It's just someone that's been where you want to go and can show you a good way to get there. And then now, the harder part happens. The next thing that Saul did is he did the painful work of making that change stick. To do that, he found Barnabas. So we have to find a Barnabas. Someone that believes in you and advocates for you. Somebody that, that honestly wants to make sure that your path is going to be the best. And this is easier said than done. These people can be hard to find. Now, later on, we see Paul and Barnabas get in a disagreement and actually break being friends. Relationships are tough. They're messy. Sometimes when somebody's in a relationship or a mentor role or a friend role for us and they say something difficult, our reaction is to want to not have anything to do with them. I think that's part of the story for these guys. But when we find somebody who can actually be there with us side by side and push us to better things, we see, we see breakthroughs. And the last thing that we see from Saul that we can apply is this. The last thing, we pursue our purpose no matter what the cost is. And it might be high, right? 
For Paul, it's a series of sufferings that we can only begin to start to understand or relate to. But here's the thing. We pursue the purpose no matter what the cost is. No matter what somebody says or does to persecute us. No matter how painful it is to act on. If it's right, it's worth it. And I think about this all the time when I read Paul's letters or when I read Acts. I think about it all the time that Paul would talk about how he longs to see people that he loves know Jesus, but they don't. How it breaks his heart that people that, that would never know Jesus would keep, continue to walk away from him. I see Paul writing about how he's alienated from those that are improving of his faith and his direction. And I think about some of my friends who have had the same thing happen. Paul knew what he was talking about. He knew what it was to be left by everybody that he loved and to not just be left by them, but to be hated or even in some cases hunted by them. He knew what it was like for people to want to see you dead that were literally your best friends and your family your entire life. He had a high cost. He left his way of life. He left his upbringing. He left his zealous family, his friends, his community, and he would never, ever be able to go back. And I can't help but think that when he wrote the letters where he talked about how Jesus can change everything for anyone, that the faces of his mother and his father and his siblings and his best friends flashed by him as he wrote those words. See, Paul knows what it means to be convicted of the truth of Jesus and to risk everything, his entire way of life that he spent his entire first decades defending and even killing for because it was worth it. So Kendra, tonight, this is what I really want to leave us with. We serve a Jesus that's called us. We serve a Jesus who has chosen us. We serve a Jesus who tells us that we belong to him. And then he invites us into something so grand that everything else pales in comparison as we seek to align our lives with his way. And we see this first church called The Way. And we see the echo in the way that we live our lives now. And we remember that we belong to each other as well. And whether it's a moment of flashing lights and loud voices or just a day where you wake up and realize that you've put that thing behind you, every single one of us has it in us to do the hard work to push after the things that he has for us next. I'm going to pray for us. If you guys would stand with me, I would love that. God, I am so thankful that you are the kind of God that we see in this story about Saul. The kind of God who challenges us to be pushed to something better, that looks across and sees somebody who's persecuting his church and decides, I want that person on my team. And God, I pray tonight for each one of us in here as we experience change either in big or small ways, maybe step by step or day by day, maybe something monumental happens in this next season. That as we try to figure out what it looks like to make it stick, that we put the right people around us. We'd find a mentor. God, we would, we would find a, a friend like Barnabas that can vouch for us. God, that we would actually do the painful part of change that is so difficult, which is to do the entire part of repentance where we turn our entire body a different direction and painfully limp towards the thing that could be better. God, we thank you that Jesus is so good and that he gives us the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has promised us that he's with us always, that just like Saul on that road, that when everything changed, it was the moment that he allowed the Holy Spirit to take direction of his life and push him towards the things that you had for him. I pray tonight that we could be those kind of people. 
that we can put things aside we need to put aside, that we can push towards the painful change we need to make, even if it hurts. We thank you that Jesus shows us the way, and Jesus is so good. We pray this in his name.